My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, GCF. This morning we'll continue our series through the book of Psalms, and we'll get back to the Gospel of John, Lord willing, uh, in mid-September. But let me, let me pray once again as we uh, pause to hear from God's Word. Father, I confess that nothing good will happen right now unless you send your Spirit. So we pray that you would act supernaturally to give each one of us the gift of understanding this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of this sacred text to encourage the saints and to convert all those non-Christians that are present this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Becky went to the beauty salon she had frequented for years, but when her hair was done and she left, she could not find her way home. Her husband, Douglas, panicked and immediately filed the missing persons report with the Denver police. Becky was later diagnosed with a progressive, incurable, and fatal brain disease called primary progressive aphasia. In a dark irony, this accomplished author and one-time Mensa member could no longer find the right words for common objects like hairbrushes and toothbrushes and mirrors. By the way, Mensa is the official society for geniuses. Eventually, she forgot how to start the car. She forgot how to use a computer. She forgot what a phone was. People with this disease often die within five to 10 years of onset. After watching his wife's mind deteriorate for years, Dr. Douglas Grudheis, husband to Becky, seminary professor, and Christian author said, I am exhausted. I didn't know a soul could endure so much emotional anguish. I'm becoming an expert on suffering. I've never cried so much as I have in the last few years. Watching his wife suffer tempted Douglas to doubt God's goodness. In moments of anguish, pain, suffering, and sorrow, we too are tempted to doubt God's goodness. And when we doubt that God is good, it's really hard for you and I to trust God. Which brings us to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a psalm of personal trust in God. The psalmist, King David, in this psalm, recounts God's goodness to bolster his trust in God. Because again, if we believe that God is good, we'll trust him. If we don't, we won't trust him. It's that simple. So this psalm lays out two areas where God displays his goodness to us. The psalmist talks about God's goodness in this life and God's goodness in the life to come. And the point of this psalm is simply this. We can trust God because God is good. Let's look at both spheres this morning. First, we see God's goodness in this life. How? In this life, David, who wrote this psalm, had a refuge. Look with me at Psalm 16, 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. 
David is convinced that God will act as his refuge in this life. And so he's confident that when times of crisis come, he'll be okay. Furthermore, in this life, David had a community. Verses three to four, David writes, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. King David is thankful that God has provided him with other saints for fellowship and encouragement and friendship. And these saints are different than those that run after other gods. And I I love how the psalmist reminds us, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Sin will never, ever, ever satisfy. It just leads to heartache and pain. In this life, David also has a provider, more evidence of God's goodness. Verses five and six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David sees God's goodness in the form of generous and lavish provision. God has provided for David again and again and again, proving that God is good and David can be content. In addition, in this life, David has a counselor. Verses seven to eight, David writes, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Because God has given David wise counsel David declares that he cannot and he will not be shaken. And this counsel comes from one who is with David. He's present with David in all of David's hardships and distresses. If God is this good, then surely God is worthy of David's trust. Which leads David to verse 9. And in verse 9, after recounting God's goodness... In these four areas, David declares his trust in God. Because God is good, David can trust God. Verse 9, therefore, in light of all of God's goodness, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. You can hear in these words someone who trusts in God because of God's abundant goodness to David in this life. David trusts God because God is good. Maybe you're thinking at this point, well, that's great for David. But my life has been very hard. Maybe you're thinking, I've experienced significant suffering, pain, loss of relationship, a wayward child, loss of finances, a difficult job, a difficult marriage, difficult neighbors. My friends have betrayed me. Those in authority have abused me. My life has not been that good, thank you very much. Therefore, it's hard for me to trust God, who's supposedly good. Well, Dr. Douglas Grutheis can relate. Speaking of his wife's brain disease, he writes this. I haven't always suffered well. I've gone over the line at times. I've told God that I hated him for what was happening to my wife. 
That was a heartfelt expression of my grief at the time, but I don't want to impugn God. He, too, bears scars, the scars of your sins and mine. Jesus suffered far more than you and I ever will. I never question whether God exists, but I confess there were times when I questioned his goodness. Can you relate? You believe that God exists. There's evidence for that, but is God really good? If you wonder that, you're going to have a hard time trusting him when life gets hard. There's a book titled Hating God in which the author names a new religion. It's the religion of misotheism. A misotheist believes that God exists, but he or she hates God and refuses to worship him. Ivan in the Brothers Karmazov is a misotheist. He believes in God, but he spends a long section of that book recounting all the ways that humans suffer. Therefore, he doubts that God is good. And again, when we doubt that God is good, it's hard for us to trust him. Maybe you don't see much evidence of God's goodness in your life. Your pain is visceral. Your anguish is tangible. And your life is drowning in sorrow. Why? Because we sadly live in a world that's been corrupted by sin. Maybe not yours, but because Adam sinned back in the garden thousands of years ago. Sin like a cancer has affected everything in this life. And as Christians, we don't have all the answers to the problem of evil, but we have the best answers and we have the most answers. Because there is sin in the world, there is evil and suffering in the world. But if you're a Christian, God is powerful enough to take that suffering, like we sang about this morning, and somehow use it for good in your life. With that in mind, there is still evidence of God's goodness in your life. Prove it, Dave. If you're in this room this morning, you happen to live in the freest, most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Not because you deserve it, but because God is good. Furthermore, most of you get three meals a day if you want them. Many of you have four or five meals a day. <laughs> Guilty. Most of you have running water, air conditioning, heat, electricity in your home, toilets in your home. I've heard someone say once that if you take our standard of living today and go back in time 300 years, you would be the wealthiest person on planet Earth because you have plumbing and electricity and a toilet and a microwave and a stove and four walls around you. Many of us experience the joy of, of family, marital intimacy, friendship, children, a job well done, Achieving our goals. Many of us experience the little joys in life. Warm pepperoni pizza. Ice cold 
diet Mountain Dew, the nectar of the gods. It'll kill you, but man, it tastes good. I see some head nods out there. The gospel of diet Mountain Dew. Many of you experience things like good music. You read good books. You watch good shows. You swim in the lake when it's hot. You drive a car. You have health care. All that is evidence of God's common grace. The reality is that all of us deserve to be dead right now. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. If you've sinned, raise your hand, all of us. Therefore, none of us should be alive right now experiencing any blessings. Yet here we are, alive and well. And yes, life can be exceedingly painful. I don't want to minimize that for a moment. But there's still plenty of evidence of God's goodness to you in this life. Here's the application. Do what the psalmist does in verses one to nine. This week when you are tempted to doubt God's goodness, sit down with a pencil and piece of paper or a computer and type out all the evidences of God's goodness you see in your life just this week. Do it with a friend or a spouse or a child or a roommate. Talk about all the ways that God has been good to you in this life and give thanks. Thanksgiving is the language of heaven. Complaining is the language of hell. God's been good to us in this life. All of us without exception. And if that's true, then God can be trusted Because he's good to us in this life, he can be trusted. The greatest act of goodness that God has displayed to all of us this morning is not Diet Mountain Dew or lakes to swim in or marriage or children, but the greatest act of God's goodness to us is sending his own son to earth to suffer and die in the place of sinners. If you doubt God's goodness, simply pause and look to the cross and rejoice and be exceedingly glad. God has dealt with your greatest problem by having his own son crucified in your place. In light of that, how in the world can you and I doubt that God is good? He's given us his own son. Now, With all that said, if our experience of God's goodness ends with this life, we are in trouble. Fortunately, it doesn't. Christians will also experience God's goodness in the life to come, which brings us to the second point. First, God's goodness in this life. Second, God's goodness in the life to come. Well, how do we see God's goodness in the life to come causing us to trust him more? Well, in several ways, we see God's goodness in the hope of the life to come. Look with me at Psalm 16, verse 10. David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David is hopeful that Sheol, the place of the dead, will not end his relationship with God. He's hopeful that when he dies, he will still be in God's presence. 
Furthermore, David is hopeful that he will not see corruption after death. That word corruption is a metaphor for total banishment and isolation from God. David is full of hope when he thinks of the life to come. Did David fully understand the life to come? No. He lived a thousand years before Christ. Theologians talk about progressive revelation. As the Bible unfolds, we learn more and more and more about God's plan. But David knew enough to know that when he died, there was hope for a better existence in the future. And hope is an incredibly powerful force. I wonder if you've heard about the gospel of cold showers. Everywhere I look these days, I see articles and podcasts extolling the benefits of the cold shower. Is it just me or have any of you seen this besides a couple of you have? Okay. An article on the benefits of cold showers is one of the most popular articles of all time on the great website, The Art of Manliness, which is a fantastic website. If you're a man, check it out. It's wonderful stuff. Why take cold showers? According to some experts, a cold shower improves circulation, relieves depression, keeps skin and hair healthy, strengthens immunity, increases fertility, boosts testosterone, increases energy and well-being, and these benefits are just the tip of the iceberg. Some of you got that. Thank you. Okay. That's good. I don't, I don't believe in the gospel of cold showers. I hate cold water. Okay, this week we were at Priest Lake, and it was probably 95 degrees on the dock. My kids are all in the water, and they're in my swimming suit, and I stood on the edge of the dock for at least 15 minutes contemplating, should I jump in or not? <laughs> my boys yelled, Dad! What's the big deal? The water feels great. Dad, you're a wimp. Dad, just jump in. Eventually, after lots of prayer, fasting, and contemplation, <laughs> I jumped in. Why do I hate cold water? Because it's cold. It's not worth it to me. I hear, I hear all the benefits and I think, I just don't believe in the gospel of cold showers, but some people do, and so every day they subject themselves to a good 10 to 15 minute, not just lukewarm, but like really cold shower. They endure the pain of the shower. They endure the pain of subjecting themselves to shivering, chattering teeth, and headaches. Why? Why in the world would any sane person stand in a cold shower for 15 minutes. One word. Hope. They know that at some point the suffering will end. They'll be out of the shower in a warm towel. And they know, or at least they think they know, that this cold shower will make their life better. It'll boost testosterone. Hope enables them to endure the pain and the misery of the cold shower. Hope is an incredibly profound and powerful force. The psalmist had hope that someday when he died, his life would be better. Again, Psalm 1611. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or death, or let your Holy One see corruption. The psalmist knew that at some point in his life, all of his difficulties would be over. There was hope. Which raises the question, what difficulties are you currently facing? The difficulties of health, of work, children, money, friends. No matter how difficult your life gets, there's hope if you're a Christian. And the hope is simply this. At some point, all the pain, misery, suffering, and difficulties will be over. When you die, an experience that theologians call the beatific vision, you will look upon Christ. You will see his face. And in that instance, there'll be an explosion of joy that affects you for all eternity. God is good. He gives you and I hope. If he's good, he can be trusted. But is this hope certain? Let's keep reading. We see God's goodness in the hope of the life to come. In addition, we see God's goodness in the certainty of the life to come. Psalm 16:10 again. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. The psalmist describes the certainty of the life to come in verse 10, but this may not be immediately obvious to you unless you're aware of the fact that the New Testament quotes Psalm 16:10 twice. Acts 2 and Acts 13. Acts 2 records a sermon Peter preached right after the resurrection of Jesus. And during this sermon, he quotes from Psalm 1610. Here's what Acts 2, 27 to 32 says. Again, this is Peter preaching. Quoting Psalm 1610, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Me, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is arguing that Psalm 1610 is actually fulfilled in the fullest sense in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Theologians talk about this concept called sensus plenor, which means the fuller sense. Psalm 1610 had application for David, but has application for us too. In the fullest sense, this is about Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. Because Christ rose from the dead, you and I can have certainty about the life to come. Well, how? The penalty for sin is death. As I've already mentioned, all of us have sinned in numerous ways. And because we sin, we deserve to die. But Jesus Christ never once sinned. He was the perfect God-man. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, 
suffered and died on the cross, but because he was perfect, when he died, death could not contain him or hold him down, so he burst victoriously from the grave. If you're a Christian, if you are currently trusting in Jesus, then you are in Christ. All the things that Christ did now apply to you through your mystical union with Christ. When Christ lived, you were there. When Christ died, you were there. And when Christ rose from the grave, you were there with him. So when Christ rose from the dead and you rose with him, that's proof that someday you will also rise from the grave. Christ's resurrection makes certain our resurrection. Because Christ rose, we will rise as well. And we will rise as perfect, righteous, forgiven, adopted sons and daughters of Jesus. Which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ rose from the grave. The power of sin, the sting of sin has been crushed. You will rise with him. And God has given us the certainty, the certainty of our resurrection and the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Since he rose, we will rise. But Dave, how certain is the certainty of Christ's resurrection? Well, here's a brief summary of the historical evidence for the certainty of the resurrection. Jesus Christ's resurrection was prophesied several hundred years before it happened, as I've already mentioned. Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross. This is confirmed by non-Christian sources of the time, several actually. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. Monotheistic Jews, passionately opposed to worshiping humans, saw the evidence for the resurrection and began to worship Jesus, the God-man. Many of the eyewitnesses chose to die rather than deny the truthfulness of the resurrection. And today, the certainty of the resurrection sustains over two billion souls worldwide. If you're a Christian, you must remember that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how hard your life gets, when you die, it is certain that someday you'll be raised with Jesus in victory. And his resurrection makes certain our resurrection. Christianity is not just wishful thinking, not just some vague hope. I sure hope Christ rose from the grave. Christianity is rooted in history. The resurrection is rooted in historical evidence. If you doubt the resurrection, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to give you some resources to further explore the historicity of the resurrection of the Son of God. God is good. He gives us evidence for the certainty of the resurrection. Therefore, he must be trusted. But what will heaven be like once we get there? Let's keep reading. We see God's goodness in the hope of the life to come. We see God's goodness in the certainty of the life to come. 
And we also see God's goodness in the quality of the life to come. Psalm 1611, the culmination of this psalm. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes the life to come. He describes it as a life full of joy and eternal pleasure. But how do we know he's talking about heaven in Psalm 1611? We know he's describing heaven because of the progression of the psalm, the context of verses 9 and 11, and the fact that this quality of life will last forever. What will it be like to experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? Again, in this life, we experience some joy and pleasure. The joy of friends, laughter, marriage, children, grandchildren, delicious food, golf, Seahawks games. Not as joyful this fall as last year, but hopefully still joyful. Promotions, achievements, milestones, hobbies, books, movies. All these things bring us some level of joy. But if all these joys combined were one grain of sand. The joy that David is describing in verse 11 would be like the joy of all the grains of sand and all the deserts and beaches on planet Earth. There's no comparison. How can I say that? Because in heaven, this Eternal joy will increase for all eternity, which means you'll be more joyful 90,000 years from now than you are 10,000 years from now. Well, how can I say that? Because our joy in heaven is based on knowledge of God. The more that we know God, the more joy that we experience. But here's the thing. God is infinite and we are finite, which means we will never, ever, ever exhaust our knowledge of God, which means for all eternity, we'll keep growing and learning and growing and learning and becoming more and more and more and more joyful, but we'll never, ever exhaust that because God is infinite. So in your happiest moment now, multiply that by a trillion And in 10 trillion years, you'll be even happier. That's how infinite and glorious and majestic is the triune God. I love how Sam Storms describes this. He has a great book in a chapter called Heaven, Joy's Eternal Increase. Our experience of God will never reach its consummation. We will never finally arrive as if upon reaching a peak we discover there's nothing beyond. Our experience of God will never become stale. It will deepen and develop, intensify and amplify, unfold and increase, broaden and balloon. Our relishing and rejoicing in God will sharpen and spread and extend and progress and mature and flower and blossom and widen and stretch and swell 
and snowball and inflate and lengthen and augment and advance and proliferate and accumulate and accelerate and multiply and height and reach a crescendo that will even then be only the beginning of an eternity of new and fresh insights into the majesty of who God is. As one hymn says, it is not death to die. As Christians, death is the doorway into a life of ever-increasing joy in the presence of the triune God. And that joy in heaven, again, is based on knowing God. Listen again to Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our supreme and ever-increasing joy in heaven is based on ever-increasing knowledge of God. And here's the good news. That joy can start right now. The moment you turn away from your sins and put all your hope and confidence and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you, to be your Lord and your Savior. We can experience the taste of that in this life because we can have a relationship with God in this life. And the question is, why would you not? In light of that, turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus. Sin will never, ever satisfy as Psalm 16, 5 says. But knowledge of God, relationship with God, will satisfy now and for all eternity. God is very good. Therefore, God can be trusted. God's goodness is seen in this life, and his goodness is seen in the life to come. But God's goodness does not mean that life will be easy. Back to where we started. Douglas Grootheis and his wife Becky suffered for 10 years as Becky slowly lost her mind and then died. They prayed and fasted for healing, for a miracle, but the miracle never came. What sustained them? God's goodness in the life to come. Before Becky died, an interviewer asked Douglas this question. When Becky despairs, what do you say to her? His response, what can I say? I can't tell her it's going to get better in this life. That wouldn't be honest. And we're committed to avoiding cliches and easy answers. So I told her to take it one day at a time, to look for the good things in life, and to remember that God loves her. I say, think of the future of the world without tears, without a curse, when you'll have a perfect resurrection body and you'll be face to face with God. Does that help her? Asked the interviewer. It does. In fact, just this morning I said to her, in the long run, everything will be all right. God can be trusted because he's exceedingly good. He's good in this life and he's good in the life to come. Let's pray together.